Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today on Pediatrics Now, I'm interviewing Dr. Mario Fierro, who is board certified in developmental and behavioral pediatrics. Dr. Fierro, it's great to have you here with me in the podcast studio. Thank you for your invitation. Now, Dr. Fierro, you attended Harvard Medical School, University of Washington Health Science Center Children's Hospital in Seattle for residency, and University of Colorado Children's Hospital in Denver after that, and you've been in the medical community here in San Antonio for 19 years. Yes, ma'am. Gosh, you make me sound like I've been all over the place. (laughs) But you've recently joined the team here at UT Health San Antonio. Yes, ma'am. So is um, here in San Antonio, is that your favorite place you've lived so far? That's a great question. I love San Antonio. I grew up in El Paso, Texas, but I have ties to San Antonio because I was here for undergrad. And I, I like the people and I like Mexican food, so this is a perfect place for me. I speak Spanish, so that helps. That's wonderful. <laughs> and so tell me a bit, what do you like to do here in San Antonio or in your spare time so we can get to know you a little better? I think the main thing I do, honestly, is chauffeur my 13-year-old son around uh, the city for his various uh, extracurricular activities. But when I have free time, I enjoy hiking. Uh, I hang out with some of my friends and do trivia, pub nights. Uh, I don't read as much as I used to, but I think that's my attention span is starting to wane as I'm getting older. Uh, But no, I I like being active. I will do a half marathon here and there just for the fun of it. I'm not a very good trainer, so I'm more of a weekend warrior, but, you know, I, I, like, uh, I like San Antonio. I like the ability to be able to go and do day trips to a variety of different places. You go down to the coast, you can go up into the hill country. If you want to jump on a plane, you can probably much get anywhere from here. So I love the location. And a half marathon is actually fun. <laughs> for some people, they get the endorphins going. Uh, I know that some people hate running and jogging, but for some, some people like me, I mean, I think... I'm stubborn enough that I don't like to stop, so it helps me. But running a full marathon, I have done a few in my life, is just a little bit too much, too much wear and tear on my knees in recovery because I'm not a consistent trainer. For our listeners in San Antonio, I've, I love uh, Eisenhower Park. Have you tried that place to hike? I think there's some great trails out oh, there. Oh, yes, there's great trails. Uh, very close to San Antonio. I like Eisenhower Park, I, even just little little ones like Comanche Lookout. I mean, they, just even in the city, they have wonderful, heck, even just the Mission Trail has grown so much, and it's so accessible. And we've talked about in this podcast how important it is to get out in nature and what that does, especially for busy practitioners who are stressed out and work long hours during the week. It really helps. I think that for all individuals, it's good to go out and do something, even if it's just to walk or just get outside, go smell the roses. I mean, it really is important. Uh, I have a tendency to be a little bit more um, hyperkinetic, and uh, I think uh, earlier I think that would have been diagnosed as having ADHD. Uh, So being part of my school sports teams and being able to go off and do physical things were definitely an outlet to get rid of some of my extra energy. And I think it keeps me healthy and sane. 
it's so great for kids when they can participate in sports, right? Very much so, especially nowadays. Unfortunately, as we all are stuck to our electronic devices, um, there's just way too much screen time with these kids. Uh, if they're not playing video games, they're doing their homework on the computer. If they're not doing their homework on, on the computer, they're watching their videos and TikToks and this and that. And unfortunately, that's passive entertainment, and it's not active entertainment, so we're not using our full brains when we're doing that. It will affect our creativity, in my opinion. Yes, and it's so easy to be on a screen for most of the day, even for kids, right? Yeah, I think that if you think about it now, even adults, we're behind the screen most of our days, not only for work, but also for our entertainment, you know? So I think uh, it also is what we're showing our kids to do. So I think we have to lead by example and being able to, you know, put our phones down. Just even as simple as, like, putting your phones down at the dinner table if you're able to eat together at lunch, at lunch or dinner or whenever it's possible. That's great advice. Do you have a quote, Mario, you'd like to share? In, in preparing for this talk, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, you asked me to pick one out, and I think that it's very important for people to know that I'm a pretty simple guy. I like things that get to the point, and I truly believe that developmental behavioral pediatricians, which is kind of an offshoot of general pediatrics, we've only been our own board-certified specialty since 2000s, uh, is that my credo or my motivation is maximizing someone's potential. And I think that if we look at every child and individual and work on trying to maximize their potential, I think that's when we best serve. So the quote that I picked out was, most people see what is and never see what can be. And that's a quote from Albert Einstein. And I think it, it goes far to explain the belief that if we look at the positives and what can be and focus on the strengths and not the weaknesses, we can actually make a big difference in any family or individual's life. I love that quote. <clears throat> Do you take that to your practice when you're, I mean, it's got to be difficult, your profession with the children that you're seeing, who a lot of them have a really tough time? You know, as a developmental behavioral pediatrician, we see the gamut. Uh, we see some children that have severe spastic quadriplegia and may never walk or talk. And then I see, you know, individuals that are very high-functioning uh, autistic uh, individuals that are going off to college and getting their PhD. But the important part is if we can focus on the strengths and what they're able to do, um, I think it makes a big difference. Uh, just comes to the top of my mind is uh, children with severe disabilities, when I leave uh, an evaluation, I always like to give parents homework. And I like to ask what's going to be different next time I get to see them since I don't get to see them as frequently as I would like to. And if it can be as simple as, well, by the next visit, I want him to be able to, someone who's wheelchair bound, to be able to reach out and squeeze my hand when I say hello. Or it's a huge proponent for the parents to focus on something for the next time they get to see me. So then at the next visit, they come and they're proud of the fact that their child is doing X, Y, or Z. So it's very important to give goals uh, for the next visit because it makes parents um, feel like they're part of the child's care plan. You know, in developmental behavioral peds, unfortunately, we have become sometimes the de facto um, child psychiatry in the fact that we do have to uh, prescribe medications for certain symptoms. Uh, but it's important for families and individuals to know that, you know, medications don't solve everything. If anything, they're just 
to be an adjuvant to help with a symptom that'll help the behavioral and the modifications that we're doing take better effect. I want to mention, because for those of our listeners here in the San Antonio and surrounding area, and I get asked a lot where you'll be seeing patients. So for the next 18 months, it'll be at 10350 Bandera Road, Suite 140. That's the UT Health Verity Hills location. And I'll put this uh, number in the podcast text, um, but the phone number is 210-450-7334. And to fax a referral is 210-450-2124. So Dr. Fierro, what would you say is one of the top things you'd like pediatric practitioners to to know about right now as they're they're getting hit with so many different things we've got covid flu rsv you know kids they're seeing 30 or more patients a day what what would you like to say <laughs> well one is as i mentioned before you know developmental behavioral peds is a nostril of general pediatrics because we definitely feel that it's a place where hopefully we can take a step back and see what are we trying to do to help this patient and family continue to progress and move forward. Unfortunately, seeing, you know, multiple patients a day, it doesn't give us enough time to establish rapport as a general pediatrician. So the gift of being a developmental pediatrician is hopefully we can establish better relationships with families just because of the time commitment. I know that there are a lot of practitioners out there that have their motivation is in the right place and their hearts are in the right place, but unfortunately there are just circumstances that make it difficult. I think that the most common diagnoses that I see from the community is a two-year-old that's having developmental problems or issues. And just trying to sort of navigate, well, is this more of a behavioral issue? Is this ha- attention deficit? Is this a learning disability? Can this Could this be autism? I think the general practitioners in the area are good about screening, but sometimes it's hard to take in surveys from teachers and parents and put it all together, collate it, make a... Make a change or a plan and then see how that progresses. Uh, So I think that it's a very hard in this day and age sometimes with vaccinations and colds and the flu and the COVID and and the gastroenterological problems and stuff like that. It's, it's hard. I mean, I think general practitioners wear a lot of different hats and subspecialists were able to kind of hopefully narrow things down into one particular area. Mine being hopefully the, enabling therapists, practitioners, families, and uh, how to maximize a child's potential when it comes to school behaviors or the like, period. <clears throat> what advice do you have, if any, about where there, I know in San Antonio, there's few resources for developmental pediatrics in particular. Get on the waiting list or what? <laughs> I think that it's very hard. I think the AAP tries to give guidelines to help general practitioners like how to get the ball rolling, but there is a need for developmental and behavioral pediatricians. Uh, I was just reading the other day that less than half of the fellowship slots for developmental and behavioral pediatrics were even filled. So the opportunity to educate, you know, residents is there. It's just that the ability to fill those slots and make it uh, something that uh, other practitioners want to be their niche in the healthcare community is a little bit difficult. I think that as a developmental pediatrician, I think if general practitioners know that we're supposed to be an asset to them and help them, 
uh, I think that goes a long way to move things forward as far as us working as a community to maximize uh, children's potential. It's not just they went to psychiatry or they went to neurology and they went to the developmental pediatrician and then the PCP is done because we need everybody to work together, especially since in this day and age we have to work with the confines of what therapy is able to give us, the whole insurance issues and what needs to be done so that they can have access to therapies if it's necessary. So I think that knowing that we're just a piece of the puzzle to help them continue to improve and that we will hopefully diagnose and be appropriate in pointing families and practitioners and therapists in the right direction. That's what I'll hear. That's what I hope for in the long run. Um, and then is that what inspired you? Is w I know you were telling me earlier, being able to see the progress of a kid in college who's doing really well. Yeah, I think that for me, the, the, what makes me the happiest is seeing a patient on follow-up and seeing how much they've been able to improve from their last visit and how proud they are and how the proud their parents are as far as what they've been able to do since their last visit. I think that when things don't improve, it actually gives us a good launch point. So like I said before, sometimes I like to give the parents homework and, and patients homework for their next visit. And if they're not meeting the goals, then that's a good indicator for me to be able to do a little bit more teaching and educating in that particular area to see if we can do something different. <coughs> and often a child with autism may have a parent who has autism as well. Sometimes. I, I do believe that, that a lot of... Um, since no one knows exactly what causes autism, I think we have a lot of good information about what the phenotype and what the characteristics are of children with autism spectrum disorders. But what is the underlying cause? We're still trying to figure that out. I do see that characteristics that are seen in individuals with autism spectrum disorders do run in families, just like they do in children that have attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, just like they do in uh, mental health issues and problems. I think this is a great place to say that we need more child psychiatrists also. I think that it's a very hard job, uh, mental health issues, you know, moving forward. We definitely need more resources in these areas. Definitely. And I'll, I'll put also in the text here information about CPAN, and that's uh, where UT Health pedi pediatric psychiatrists are available Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 uh, for pediatric practitioners and if you or a team member calls this number, you can you can get a UT Health pediatric practitioner on the line very quickly. <coughs> so let's talk a little bit about vaccines. Any advice on what practitioners should say as they're getting, you know, they have patients who are maybe vaccine hesitant, they're worried still about autism. I know when was it, uh, I know when my my middle child, my son was a baby, that was there was a star movie star who came out and said she thought autism caused was caused by vaccines and there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy around that time i think that when it comes to vaccinations and the possibility of the, the um, leading to autism it's very important to know that no one knows exactly what causes autism but when we do long studies and compare with our friends in europe and they could see vast numbers because they have more centralized health records and stuff like that the i do believe that uh, it is safe to vaccinate uh, uh, children i do not believe that there's a direct correlation but that's just my opinion through how i've educated myself but I think that the, what's most important is to realize that 
if parents have hesitancies or, or concerns, the only way that we can bridge that gap is with education and with establishing rapport. And we need to establish some way of parents having confidence in us and not immediately saying, well, if you don't vaccinate, I don't want you to be part of the practice. Or if you don't, I think that we can definitely do more in trying to work with families than to turn them away. Because unfortunately, then they will reach out and turn to more eclectic and maybe not board certified uh, health care providers in the area that will do things that can cause uh, long-term problems, be it, you know, uh, intrinsic specialized diets or chelation or the like. That's great advice. What, um, is there one thing or a couple of things that you see that go misdiagnosed for a while that you wish had been caught sooner that you would say you don't need to look out for if, if a parent sees this happening or an, if in that exam a, a pediatrician or pe practitioner notices something? I think uh, general practitioners are good about doing screener exams such as the MCHAV and even just the ASQ in the stages to be able to see if there's anyone that's drastically behind or has enough um, tendencies to be of concern. I think that in the long run, what I would love to see is the ability for providers to educate parents into what is typical and atypical at different points in time for their children. The reason I say this is because we try and we give handouts and, and those sort of things, but it's when things veer from the... Uh, that from the typical and become atypical, that I think that that's when we need to get involved. I think that a lot of improvement can be done if we see that a child that is one-year-old is not making very good eye contact with the, with the caregivers. Um, I think that at a year and a half when a child is not pointing and gesturing for his needs and wants and is starting to fall behind in, in the verbalizations um, is very important for the parents to be aware of. Practitioners in, you know, eight minutes that they have in, in an exam room with a family can, cannot tease that out. Uh, that's why I think that the most important thing, as I said before, is establishing rapport and for families to understand that we're there for them and that we want to give them the tools to help maximize their child's behavior. Look, not every child is going to go to college, you know, um, and be on the dean's list, but that's not what, I, what my goal is. My goal is to maximize every child's potential and to make them the best individual they can be and how that interacts and interfaces with the family dynamics. So for example, if a child is having a severe sleep difficulty, it doesn't just stress the child out, it stresses the family member that has to be up all night yet still get up and go to work the next day. So I think that if we see that raising children is part of a community and that we're trying to do what's best for everybody else, uh, taking into effect and taking into our knowledge base that what we do helps and trickles out from the individual issue or, or problem, I think that's where we best serve um, others and families in the long run. <clears throat> and I would imagine a, a lot of these parents and caregivers may feel isolated when they're going through this with uh, their child. I think that depending on your, there's a lot of cultural differences, but I think that there are some cultures where if a child is not, what is, I'm doing air quotes if you can't see me, um, typical. <laughs> it's very important for uh, them to understand that 
there's very variations to what typical and atypical are. But culturally, sometimes people are afraid that there's going to be a stigma on the family if a child ends up having a genetic problem or if they have autism or if they're um, mentally uh, incapacitated or even having uh, anxiety or mental health issues and problems. There's a huge stigma. They feel like it, it, it influences the entire family and how others in the community may see them. I think the more that we can do to just educate families and say, no, this wasn't your fault. We know that there's genetic tendencies for a, a lot of conditions, as we talked about the mental health issues, the attention deficit, the autism, that kind of stuff. But it's not uh, delineated exactly where we know exactly what gen gene is causing what. But we know that it's going to end up being a combination of things. It's going to be a just like cancer, it's going to be a genetic predisposition, and then there's going to be an environmental insult that causes. I have families that four out of the five children have an autism spectrum disorder, and it's not the first one or the last one. It's the, it's the four in the middle. you know. Or I have, I have other families where uh, they have six children, only one has a developmental delay, and, and they all came from the same family. So please understand that we are trying to be unique and try to do what's best for the individual person that's in front of us and the family that, that uh, that's in front of us to help everybody understand and see that our ultimate goal is f to be an asset. And I am the first person that is comfortable with a family member um, questioning what I say or looking for a second opinion or that, uh, that kind of thing. It doesn't bother me because I think that I do the best that I can when I'm with the individual. And then if they're questioning or if they're worried about something, uh, then they can, they can continue to pursue. There is, as you said before, a big lack of availability and resources for diagnosing developmental disabilities or even mental health services. And that makes me sad. But I think that the more that we can help others and know that it's a long road together, just to circle back on your on your comment as far as like vaccines or medications and stuff like that. I've had families that were anti-medicine for over a year and a half. And when they finally felt comfortable enough to try a low dose of a medication, they'll come back and they'll be like, wow, Dr. Fierro, you really did make a difference. Or maybe the child has a side effect and they're like, well, see, this is why I didn't want to start medications to begin with. Either way, in the process of trying to help the families, I'm going to try to do what I feel is going to be the best for long-term outcomes. <clears throat> the book, I happen to be reading the novel, um, it's called Rosie Result, and the main character has autism, and I think it's really a beautiful read where it, it gives you the perspective of how he's thinking, and and this it's this unique perspective, and I think that that's really important with autism. Is that something you try to get across to parents and sometimes I think that into us just in individuals wants what's best for our direct siblings or our own children and that kind of stuff and unfortunately we add a filter um, but for some children that have a spectrum disorder they don't see the world exactly the way that we see it so we we kind of impose our own kind of layers of what we think is supposed to be appropriate when for them it's not an issue or not a problem um, so I think that when it does become an issue or a problem that they're aware of, then of course that's when we have to do behavior modification to help. It's just that they approach things from a different perspective. And as long as we're willing to see that there is more than one way to uh, address or attack a problem, be it academically, be it social, 
then I think it's then that's when we're doing what's best for the for the family and the patient. <clears throat> Is there anything else you want to say about autism for pediatric? I, I, it's very interesting. I think that uh, the diagnosis of autism and autism spectrum disorders, obviously, uh, the prevalence continues to increase. You know, if you listen to the you know CDC and and the like, I think that there have always been individuals that have uh, spectrum disorder traits. I think that we're now able to diagnose them a lot better. Also, if you think about it, years ago, people that exhibited some of the difficulty with communication and stereotypic behaviors may not have been the easiest to continue to meet a mate and procreate. But now in this day and age of social media, you actually don't have to do a lot of face-to-face interactions to start making connections with others. So I think that that also seems to be a reason why those tendencies seem to be propagating. Uh, I think that another thing that, that happens is you should also know that the diagnosis, now it's not as stigmatizing. So now people want the diagnosis so they can have you know access to applied behavior analysis therapy. Uh, I think the layman's term is ABA is what they talk about all the time. Uh, I think that that helps, you know, to, to be more in the forefront of individuals' minds, be it the healthcare providers, the teachers, the counselors, the parents, the school teachers. Are the schools doing a good job in general, or is that hard to say? <laughs> you know, it varies. You know, they, I can have a, a, an individual that goes to the same darn campus <laughs> and be uh, affected in different ways. I think that uh, every teacher t- does their best. Uh, some are better than others. I think that the biggest hurdle at times is empowering the parent to ask for help for their kids. I think that if we can do anything to help empower families and parents to ask for help, uh, I think that that will go a long way. It's too easy for, in my opinion, for a teacher to say maybe a child needs to be placed on medications because they're hyperactive uh, and not necessarily go through the steps of, well, let's evaluate them because maybe it's a learning disability or maybe they do have ADHD, but they also have other um, issues, uh, be it anxiety or learning issues or reading difficulties. Or as we know, you know, maybe it's just a socioeconomic. I can't pay attention if I'm hungry. So there's a lot of issues at stake. And if we can get back to take a step back and try to give people the benefit of the doubt and then figure out how to help them in the long run. I think that's where physicians, health care providers are best serving the community. I know that over time, healthcare providers, we've become more and more disillusioned with what we've gone into in our profession at times. Uh, we feel like insurances are telling us what we can do, and we have other people telling us, you know, what's right and what's wrong. I think that in the end, if we really remember that we went into this to try to be an asset and to help others, I think that that's where we best serve our community moving forward. That's what I was going to ask you about next was ADHD. Is it overdiagnosed, underdiagnosed? What are your thoughts there? I think that a lot of individuals have hyperkinetic tendencies and attentional difficulties. I think that differentiating what is causing a developmental delay or impacting their academics or their social skills, that's where uh, a true diagnosis sort of plays a role. Uh, so to, to answer your question, well, we know about 10% of the population uh, ha- can be can meet 
the DSM-5 criteria for uh, attention deficit disorder, uh, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And that doesn't mean that every person has to be on um, stimulant medications to make them effective. I think that there's a time and place for medications, uh, and it can be done in conjunction with other things, or instead of uh, Im immediately thinking that uh, putting them on Ritalin is going to fix all their problems, because it doesn't. Even if we get to the point where medication is necessary, it has to be done in conjunction with the family and the school teachers understanding that we're going to work on external organization and we're going to try to work on uh, behavior modification so that the goal would be that they would get to the point where they could outgrow and not need to be on that type of medication. Can autism be cured and, and is that the golden I question? <laughs> I think that everybody would love for it to be something that can be cured. I think that you can improve, and I think there's a lot of places where we can make uh, inroads in facilitating uh, individuals to become more and more independent and ability to take, take care of themselves more and more. I have had patients that, you know, were in the old days, uh, the DSM-4, uh, where had pervasive developmental disorder or Asperger's syndrome, and maybe no longer would qualify as a high-functioning individual with an autism spectrum disorder. So to answer your question, do I think that it can be cured? I think that there's, there is an opportunity to make significant improvements to the point where maybe the, the diagnosis is not valid at a different time because of other um, situational help either by being married to someone who's very organized <laughs> or very social and proactive. I mean, this, this is not just for children with, right, or individuals with an autism spectrum disorder, but uh, with ADHD or, or the like. Um, I think that we can learn how to work within ourselves. I think that in the past, for example, children and adults with ADHD would migrate to uh, occupations where they could get some of their extra energy out. They worked outside, they were out in the field, they did more they, they did more physical, but now all our, I'm sorry, a majority of our jobs are more sitting still and being behind a screen and stuff like that. So it doesn't allow us to have opportunity to get up and move as much as we would like. So I think that the way that our society is continuing to evolve may not be the best for uh, individuals that need maybe a different set of help uh, to facilitate their um, future occupation and to be a, an asset of the community. When it's all said and done, everybody wants to be a part of the community and move things forward. I don't think that people uh, set out to be like, well, I'm going to be a drain on the system. I'm going to want to, I want, I want to take a welfare all the time and, and have a nurse that takes care of me the entire day and those sort of things. So anything that we can do, be done early to help maximize the, the, the post- uh, potential of, uh, of an individual is what's going to actually be uh, helpful in the, in, the, in the long run. And if I can help in that, in that venue or in the, uh, with families and friends, and if I have to write letters to the insurance companies or uh, letters to other providers or, heck, sometimes I even have to write letters to the schools and to the other parent that may not be as involved in the child, you know, I just wanted all of us to sort of look at things from at least a similar uh, point of view and figure out how we can have a meeting of the minds and maximize everybody's potential. 
Well, it's an honor to be here with you today. And <clears throat> I think of the quote, this is one of my favorite quotes by Nelson Mandela, history will judge us by the difference we make in the everyday lives of children. And Mario, I think you're doing that. It's It's gotta be a really tough job. Uh, we appreciate everything that you're doing. Is, th is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? Look, the only thing I wanna say is that not one individual has all the answers. And what works for one child may not work for another. So it's just a matter of trying to empower the child and the parents to continue to ask the questions on how we can make things better. Uh, sometimes families are splintered and they aren't able to be an asset. I was just came back from a conference and they were talking about premature infants and how, how the outcomes are for the children and they're either feeding or in school scholastically in the future and what, you know, the effects of uh, having uh, early intervention may or may not help in the long run and how assessing the quality of what we do in our interventions is still very hard to delineate. And I think that the most important thing that we can do is take the time to take a step back and say, okay, what can we do at this juncture to help them get to a different point in the future? And if we break things down into smaller steps and we can explain it to the people that work with the child or the individual, then that's where we're gonna see the best goals. And unfortunately in this day and age, where everything is in you know 30 second sound bites and stuff like that it is hard. Hard, hard it's hard to establish rapport with a family you know when you're only in there for eight to 12 minutes it's hard to uh, convey that you really care about a family when you're quickly stuck behind a computer trying to get your electronic record uh, done i think that we've lost a little bit of our humanity and compassion when we uh, hide behind electronics and i think that the more that we can maybe at least for a few minutes, put it aside and try to make those connections with patients and families. That's what really does make the biggest difference. It reminds me of, I'm sorry if it's an aside, if I'm going too long, I apologize. No, it's great. It reminds me of, I had a resident with me a few guys a couple months ago, and their question was, Dr. Fiora, have you been sued? And, and I, it kind of took me aback. I'm like, well, did I do something this morning that, <laughs> <laughs> that I should uh, change? And she was just wondering about, like, you know, in the future, you know, w you know, was there a chance that she'd be sued? And I explained to her that I've been blessed in my 19 years in the community that maybe there have been, like, two times that, I, that there was, there was, there was a, a, an issue or a problem, but that even when there was a problem, having a relationship with the family made the biggest difference. For example, one of the incidents was a young child, well, a child developed tardive dyskinesia when I started him on a, an atypical antipsychotic. I'm not a big pill pusher, but unfortunately there is a time and place where we need medications to be, to be done and our child psychiatry comrades are swamped and, and, and they just don't have the bandwidth. Um, so I started him on it and he developed a tardive dyskinesia and they sued the company that I formerly was working for. Two weeks later, the mom calls the office and says, well, when's our next appointment? And I explained to her that I can't see him anymore because they're suing me. <laughs> and, wow. and, and I think that the, what, what, it, what it delineates or what it, I think what it highlights is the fact that if you establish rapport and you explain to families and friends, uh, families and parents that you're trying to do what's best for the child and they truly believe that you're genuine, that, that bodes well in the long run and to hopefully buy, buy in from them and from others. <clears throat> One doctor I was talking to, he was 
saying how he builds rapport, um, and he's a, a breast cancer surgeon, but he always, at the end of every visit with a patient, he shoots the breeze, and he talks about not anything to do with what the patient is going through with, you know, clinically. Is that something that you recommend? I think that there's different ways that different practitioners kind of try to establish rapport and try to make connections with families and patients. Um, Some get down on all fours and play with the kids in pediatrics. Um, I think I have a tendency to want to ask the older kids, um, you know, what they want to be when they grow up, uh, because I want them to know that it's okay to think about the future. And if you're worried about, you know, I'm failing all my classes, what am I going to be? I'll never be able to be president of the United States. Although that's not what I get at, uh, responded to. The most common response has evolved over the years. Uh, when I first started, I think it was they wanted to be uh, sports athletes. Uh, the NBA players, I think, were big. Then for a while, it was rappers. Now they want to be, you know, uh, TikTok influencers, social media influencers. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think that that's a good place to sort of at least attach and say, look, okay, so if you want to be a veterinarian, because I have a lot of little girls that love animals, um, say, well, we have to do what's best to help you do the best in school so you can show others that you do want to take care of, you know, pets and animals. So I do believe that establishing rapport comes in different ways and, uh, for different practitioners, and everybody kind of develops their own style. Uh, but I know if we're aware of it and we actually know that we're conscientious about trying to make those connections, I think that's what's important. And it, it sounds like there's a lot of hope in this field. If I didn't have hope, I wouldn't get up in the morning. Seeing families that have gone through the most difficult of times, a set of triplets that two of them died in the NICU, and one of them comes out and has severe cerebral palsy and is on a, has a gastrostomy tube and will probably never walk. If we can't focus on uh, how to help him smile so that he can connect with the mom, then what are we doing? Dr. Mario Fierro, thanks for being here on Pediatrics Now. Thank you for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayman. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.